0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, all right. Welcome, everyone. Go ahead and move back to your seats. Oh, thank you, Jace. Good to see you all today, good to see you. Welcome to City Beautiful Church. Oddly enough, Palm Sunday tends to be one of our best-attended Sundays. Um, I never figured out why that was, but it's so good to see you all. Um, Was there traffic or something? When we started, there was three people, and now there's about 80. Um, So just like a little note for next week, um, I'll I'll, I'll email everybody that signs up. We're going to cap out at about 100, we're at 60, okay? So once we're capped, that's it. And then I'm going to send out an email, send out announcements like we just can't have capacity. And so when you come, what I would love for you to do is actually fill in the front, what we call the splash zone here, because this is, you know, this is where all the Holy Spirit resides. Um, and Barren and Amethyst are just like drenched in it. They're just constantly soaking in the Shekinah. Uh, so make sure you get here early next week to find seats, to make sure we have enough space where this is a bit about all the seats that we can get in here. Um, But I'm excited. It's going to be really good. I feel like the Lord's given me a really good word for today and for next week, kind of in a way capping off what we've done in this series we just finished, Kingdom Manifesto, where our our vision for the year is um, all our allegiance to King Jesus, this idea that faith is not something passive, it's not trust, it's not here's a list of things and just tick off the boxes to make sure you say all, you believe all these things and then you get into heaven when you die, but rather that faith is this full-bodied, like we give over everything we are to follow Jesus as our king and his manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, is us learning the language of our new country. Um, trying to learn what does it look like to be citizens of the kingdom before we're the citizens of anywhere else. And I think uh, today what we're doing is we're we're pivoting from the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and we're heading into the last week of Jesus's life. And what I want to do today is I want to tell the story of Jesus's last week before his crucifixion uh, and his resurrection, which we celebrate next week, in a way that Kind of juxtaposes Jesus' allegiance, his faithfulness to be who God has called him to be, and then how we often struggle with that in our own. Uh, but the beauty is that our salvation is not contingent upon just our achieving um, allegiance, our achieving of something in Jesus, but following him. And there's always this welcome home when it comes to God. There's always an invitation to come back to him even when we miss it. So my kind of major thesis for the day is this, that Jesus' allegiance unto death saves us all even when we can't be allegiant to him. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of salvation. What do we mean when we're saved? You know, maybe some of you, when you were young, you were eight, you were 12, you were 16, you were at Bible camp or whatever it is, and there was, a, there was an altar call and there was a, you know, you, you prayed the sinner's prayer and then you were saved, which meant you kind of get to go to this whatever happens after you die, and that's kind of about it. And nobody really told you about the middle bit. Like, what happens between my baptism and my, my death? And for many of us, it's just kind of like, well, we just, you just kind of twiddle your thumbs and wait for the apocalypse. That's kind of what Christianity is. But when we pivot to a fuller understanding of what we mean by salvation, we begin to realize that every ounce of our lives, every part of ourselves as a human being is in the process of being saved. And one of the most powerful ways that I see this is that we begin to turn the tide of our citizenship from being citizens of the world to being citizens of the kingdom. And what happens so often, the the juxtaposition that we see in the story of Jesus, but within our own stories, is that it's constantly kingdom versus empire. Are we going to pledge allegiance to Jesus and enter into his new world, or are we going to hold on to our old ways of being in the world, our old understandings of power? Because I think if there's anything that you and I have learned from human history, It's that human beings, we're just stuck in our ways of saving the world. And how do we save the world? Well, we just bring a bigger stick to the fight. And how do we think that God's going to save the world? Well, God's just got the biggest stick of all. You see, we just project onto Him all of our assumptions about how the world works, and we wonder why we're continually in this mess, why we see this cycle, this myth of redemptive violence. That somehow that's more control, more power, bigger sticks. That's how we're going to save the world. But my premise today is that it's Jesus' allegiance not to come in with that sense of power that he radically redefines what power really is. Not in a sense of militaristic, top-down power, but in self-giving, sacrificial love. That powerlessness against power. That's what actually saves the world. So our passage today is going to be the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Those of you that know me, you know this is one of my, like, this is one of the key passages in scripture for me. I want to read the rest of scripture through this because it, we cannot overstate how important this really is. And so this is Paul writing to this small church in Philippi and saying, this this is what it looks like it's for you to be postured as citizens of the kingdom. But you have to understand what Jesus is really like in order to get behind him and begin to pattern your life after him. And so he says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, okay? This is what we've been talking about in our Colossians group. To be a Christian is to learn how to think. Now, many of you that you're surprised because you, to be a Christian was to be told what to think. But to be a Christian is to learn how to think, to think Christianly, to think more like Christ. Because the more that we think like Christ, the more that we act like Christ. So in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, he is God. Jesus is God. You want to know what God looks like? You look at Jesus. Number one, first best thing that God has ever had to say. He was in the very nature of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. How many of us, we use our status to our own advantage? We play those cards whenever we need to get ahead in life. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I don't know how many times I've read this in my life, but it wasn't until recently that I looked at that. So it does not say, rather, Jesus became one of us. Jesus made himself equal to humanity. That's not what it says. It says, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He made himself less than us. Can you tell me a story in which a God submits himself to his own creation? Where he empties himself for the sake of love. This is not the power structures that we're used to in the world. This isn't how we would do things if it, were, we were up, it was up to us to save the world. But this is the way that God chose to do it. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So everything means everything. Do we believe everything? Or is it just, oh, just some of us. There's about you know, 70 or 80 of us, we get to do, no, no. Everything is submitted to him and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul, amen, absolutely, amen. Paul needed to write this in a poem because we need poetry to remind us that beauty will save the world. Because the story that I'm about to tell you is beautiful. And that's part of why it's true. Because we read something like this, we, we watch the story of Jesus' last week and we say, no, 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 a God who submits himself to his own creation, a God who allows these things to happen to himself, that can't be right. But when we do that, we enter into the same mentality of everybody else in the story that, we're going to te- that I'm going to tell here in just a moment. But this here, Philippians 2, this Christ hymn, This vision of what Jesus is like as fully God, making himself nothing, this is the central truth about God. There is nothing, you cannot pick another, you can't pick a Bible verse, you can't pick an experience that you've had, you can't pick a podcast or a book and hold it up to this vision of what God is like in Jesus and go, oh yes, but also this. No, 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 no. Everything submits to him. Jesus on the cross is the best vision of what God looks like. So I'm going to tell this story, and as I do, it's going to get progressively darker in this room so that we can enter into that feeling of emptying, of making himself nothing. Because part of that making himself nothing is that you and I, we've chosen to walk away and shake our heads. Because we're the ones that go, no, 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 that's not how this works. And I'm going to lead us to the table, to the Holy Communion, to the Eucharist, As a way of understanding, this is what it means to be welcomed into that vision of what God is like. So I'm gonna pray and we'll begin the story. And so, Heavenly Father, we testify that you are here, whether here means right here in this moment, in this space, whether it's for our brothers and our sisters online, uh, for those who are gonna be tuning in later here and around the world, you are here. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And not only that, but you turn curses into blessings. So, Lord, we come into this space open-handed and expectant. Not holding too tightly to all of our preconceived notions of what you're supposed to be like and what it looks like for us to save the world, to make it in our own image. But instead, Lord, we lay before your feet all of our dreams and desires and agendas and we ask you to sift through it with us, to show us what are we still holding on to tightly that is preventing us from embracing your kingdom. How do we learn to be saved again and again and again until your kingdom becomes our homeland, our home country? So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people said, amen. So we begin today with Palm Sunday. That's primarily what we're celebrating today. And Jesus' triumphal entry makes a mockery, of imperial powers even as we pledge allegiance to Caesar. So the whole ministry of Jesus has kind of been gathering up to this point. He's a rather obscure rabbi saying some very strange things from a very remote area. You know, Galilee, I've said before, is kind of like the Minnesota of, of Judea. It's weird. The people that come from there are a little bit bumpkin and they talk funny. And But there's this there's this hype over three years as this rabbi's going around and he's teaching. And not only is he teaching amazing things, but there's also these miracles that are following him and it kind of gathers up to this, this feast, the festival of unleavened bread or Passover that's being celebrated. So all, all the Jews are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this holy feast. And so Jesus sends his disciples to go and find this colt and this donkey so that it would fulfill a certain passage. And he sits on this colt and he rides in through the gate and the people begin yelling out, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, which basically means save, save, save. That's what Hosanna means. And they're laying down these palm branches, which are kind of this symbol of, we believe in redemption. We believe that we are going to be set free. And they lay down their coats. It's like, we are, this is our allegiance. This is us. This is, we, are, we are welcoming you in. And they rush out to meet him. And there's a subversive understanding of what's happening here. Because there was another power in the world that day. There was another king of the universe who was in charge. There was another son of God, and his name was Caesar. Now, you see, whenever Caesar was, was, was a, as a conquering Caesar, Pax Romana, peace through strength, whenever Caesar entered into a city, you would never, ever let him get to the city gates without having you rushing out and, and bringing him in in this triumphant procession. And Caesar would come in, and he's got horses and chariots and and soldiers and all of the slaves that that they've captured. And they'd enter into the city, and there'd be a huge parade, and they'd be singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of God, here comes Caesar, here comes our King. And so when Jesus does the same thing on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, Jesus is coming in through the back door. Jesus doesn't come through the front gate of Jerusalem. He comes through the back door. He doesn't ride on a mighty war horse, but a small colt. He doesn't come in with all of these slaves and this mighty army, but he gets welcomed in by the people. You see, Jesus is reenacting what Caesar does when Caesar is in charge to make a mockery of those imperial powers what Scripture calls the powers and the principalities, which is this weird conflation of like the demonic powers that keep us from God and how human beings think that we're going to order, order the world, our governments, our plans, our prescriptions, our top-down understandings of power. When Jesus enters in on that day in Palm Sunday, he's kind of given a middle finger to Caesar. Say, we're going to do it, but it's not going to look the way that you thought it looks. But as I was looking at this story, I'm just thinking, in terms of the whole scope of the week, how many of those people on that Palm Sunday who were shouting Hosanna, who are laying down their robes by the end of the week are yelling, crucify him, crucify him, because it did not look the way they thought it was supposed to. You see, there were all sorts of messiahs in the first century all sorts of rebellions, all sorts of people rising up to, 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 to beat up Caesar, to reestablish the nation state. And Jesus was just another long line of people who made that promise. But as people watched what happens that week, they began to walk away and say, this isn't what power looks like. This is not how you save the world. How many of them yelling, Hosanna, were, singing, were yelling, crucify him by Friday? Here's the problem for you and I. We like Caesar. We like Caesar a lot. Caesar gives us things. Caesar provides for us. Caesar makes us feel safe. Caesar calls things defense when it's actually preemptive. Caesar gives us definitions. Caesar gives us flags. Caesar gives us lingo. Caesar makes us feel like we belong to something. For a cost. Caesar says, if you just, 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 kind of, just kind of nod your head at the flag, just kind of tip your hat at the leader, you don't have to mean it. But if you do all these things, then I'm going to give you this. And what was it that Satan challenged Jesus with in the desert? If you would just bow down to me, I'll give you everything. And you and I, we love Caesar. We love the powers and the principalities We love the rulers and the authorities because they understand power like we do. We can fix the world ourselves. If we were just stronger, if we just had more means and resources Then maybe we could do it ourselves, but then you and I, friends, turn to violence to try to save the world. How many of us begin this day shouting Hosanna and by Friday we are saying crucify him. This is not the God that I want this is not the king that I signed up for. So I want you to take a moment and just reflect on that. How have I pledged allegiance to Caesar? Because Caesar provides for me, because Caesar gives me stuff. Just close your eyes and let's just take 20 minutes, 20 seconds, not that long, oh my God, we got got story to tell. (laughs) Just reflect, 20 seconds. When have I pledged allegiance to Caesar and at what cost. Thank you, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Amen. So Jesus enters into the city. He begins to walk around, sharing with his disciples all of these things that he says, and he he begins to speak out some rather intimidating things about what is to come, and they don't fully understand it. Like, they're on board, they're following him, but he just speaks in such strange ways and these riddles, and it just doesn't really fit any of their categories of what they think it looks like uh, for revolution, for salvation. And so the next thing that happens is that Jesus enters into the temple, the central place of, of Jewish uh, in, like, uh, worship and engagement with Yahweh God. And he, Jesus clears the temple. He cleanses the temple to reclaim the space for intimacy with God, even as we fill holy places with clever marketing. If you know anything about the way the temple was organized, there was the Holy of Holies right in the middle of the temple, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that was God's mercy seat. If we wanted to know where God was, that's where he was. And then there was the holy place, and that was the place where the priests were attending to God day and night, making worship, making sacrifice. And then there's progressive rings where all Jewish men were able to come in and worship, and then Jewish women, and then the outskirts, this was the place for Gentiles, you and I, the God-fearing Gentiles, were able to come in and worship. But over time, it had become so convoluted with people trying to make a buck on Jesus. Can I get an amen? That someone goes, oh, yeah, you want to enter into the kingdom? You should sign up for my workshop. You want to know God? Oh, my gosh, well, here's the the 12 steps. Here's my best-selling book. Sign up for my podcast. I'll tell you how to have have a better marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And that space that was being held for you and I to enter in and to meet God became so jammed with quick fixes, with programmatic religion. People trying to make a buck on our desire to know God you see, Jesus was reenacting the ministry of Jeremiah when he casts out all of these money changers and animal sellers and all of these intermediaries that were trying to get themselves in between us and God so that they could, they could turn a profit. And this isn't Jesus being filled with rage. So often we hear this story and it's like, oh yeah, that was the moment when Jesus was angry and he just went off and he whooped up on all these people. But never once does that story mention that he lifts a finger against another human being. Again, because we read our understanding of power and authority and strength into Jesus' story, rather than allowing Jesus' story to wash over us. He never lifts a finger against another person. But he's symbolically cleansing the temple, cleansing the space to say, hey, everybody gets back in. Too many of us, we get so stuck in this idea of buying or selling in the self-help market of religion that there's got to be a book. There's got to be a program. There's there's something that I can do that helps me to get closer to God. And there are too many people in this world, too many of us, who want to position ourselves at the gates, who want to fill the temple with all the programs so that maybe we can take advantage of other people's desire to know god and we buy into it because programs are much easier than intimacy it's so much easier some of us are so wired just to check the boxes of religiosity rather than knowing god i think having plans is easier than relationship So again, I want you to close your eyes, just take 20 seconds. When have I believed? When have I been confused with clever marketing and thought that was actually what was the way to God? come to Thursday night. We come to the feast of the Passover. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, the dear ones, the ones who have walked with him for years, sometimes stumbling, sometimes getting it, sometimes not getting it. Still kind of on the, they know something's coming, they know there's going to be this rising up against the powers and the principalities, but they still don't quite understand how it's going to look. And so Jesus begins to celebrate that Passover feast with them, this Seder dinner, where they're remembering what it was like when God rescued Israel from Egypt, from the place of death and slavery into the place of life and freedom. And as Jesus walked them through this ancient, ancient festival practice that had been around for thousands of years... There comes a moment where he takes this cup, this cup that had been part of the ceremony for thousands of years, but nobody ever knew what it was there for. It was about redemption. And he says, this, this cup, this is my blood. But it's my blood of the new covenant. It's been sitting on the table for a thousand years, and I'm here to tell you what it is. And then Jesus takes this bread, this afikomen, this unleavened bread that was the symbol of the rush out of Egypt into the desert to learn how to rely on God. And he takes this piece of bread that had been broken and pierced and scraped and he says, this is my body. I am the sustenance that God is providing you with. So all of a sudden, this ancient Passover meal becomes this new living symbol and just like you and I, I don't think the disciples understood when Jesus said, take, eat, take and drink. They didn't understand what they were doing, but it was, it's never about getting it. It's never about understanding it. It's choosing to enter in, even when we don't understand. That through continually entering in, through continually following Jesus wherever he leads us, regardless of whether we get it or not, we find that we are transformed over time. And it's amazing to think that at that table was Peter and Judas. Peter, who on the night that Jesus was betrayed, denied him three times because he was so scared. This wasn't how it was supposed to turn out. People said, you're with him. And he says, no, 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 I'm not. Three times he denies Jesus. And Judas who was probably so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was anticipating the violent revolution that he sold him out just to kind of foment this confrontation against the powers and principalities, watches Jesus get taken away and arrested and beaten and crucified. And the only difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter stuck around long enough to be forgiven. The only difference. And you and I, when we betray Jesus, when we deny him, Do we stick around long enough to receive forgiveness? See, Jesus breaks himself open to welcome us in, even as we walk away because we're afraid of associating with him. We're so swayed by our little clans, our little tribal associations. We try to co-opt Jesus into those things, but it doesn't work and then when we're confronted by the powers and the principalities when we're confronted by people that are near to us like peter we say i never knew him or like judas we say this isn't the no this isn't the jesus that i that i approved of this isn't the jesus that i wanted and we walk away for some of us we're so oriented towards safety that the wildness of following jesus is too intimidating For some of us, we're so obsessed with cool. We tried to make Jesus cool for a little while, but guess what? He's not. And he's not cool. He's not relevant. He's better than that. But one of the things that Jesus asks of us as he breaks himself open to welcome us in is, are you going to leave behind all of those measuring sticks that you have for who's in, who's out, who your tribe is, who your people are? to follow me until the end. So I want you just to take 20 seconds and just consider when are the times in my life where I've been afraid to associate with the real Jesus. After the Passover meal, Jesus takes a few of the disciples and they go off to the Garden of Gethsemane so that he can pray. And in this place, he, as he's praying, he's sweating blood. He is so terrified, he's so disturbed by what is about to happen, what humanity we see in God that he would pray with blood pouring out of his skin to say, if there is any way, Father, if there is any way that you could let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus in the garden gives up his own will for God's glory and our rescue even as we still hold tightly to our own agendas. And so this beleaguered Jesus kind of comes back to his disciples who had fallen asleep, and he says, could you not keep watch even for an hour? I need you. The God who needs us. He's so vulnerable. He's so scared. He needs us. And shortly thereafter, who enters into the garden, but Judas And some of the soldiers, uh, the local municipalities. And Jesus walks up and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. A sign of tender welcome. So that the rulers and authorities know who it is that they are to arrest. So Jesus is arrested by the very people who should have welcomed him in as the Messiah. These weren't Gentiles. These were professing Jews. These are people who had the scriptures, who were awaiting the Messiah, who were praying every day for Yahweh to deliver them. And when he's in their midst, they go, nope, not that one. That's not how we want this to be. So Jesus is arrested by his own people because they would rather keep things the way they are. Because the way things are, the status quo, it works for the people that are in power. And you and I, we don't want our worlds to be ruptured by Jesus. Because we like the way that things are. If we're honest, so many of us in this room, we're not needy. We're full. We have privilege. The structures, the powers and principles, it all works for us already. And a Jesus that comes along and tells us that we have to lay down our lives, that we have to take up our cross... That we're to be patterned in his image, that we make ourselves nothing in order to see the world saved through him. We don't like that. And so, just like the Jewish authorities in Jesus' day, we want to keep things the way that we are. I think about that prayer that Jesus prays not my will, but your will be done. And how often, maybe not through our words, but definitely through our actions we say to God, not your will, but mine be done. And when he offers us the cup, we say, no thank you. I like things the way that they are. This is why we're in a position in our world today where our thoughts and prayers don't mean anything anymore. Because it's all empty religion that would rather see things stay the way they are than to actually see the kingdom of heaven administered, to break through the pain and the suffering. So often, our religious acts, our thoughts and prayers, our attending the temple, all of these things become a placebo to us actually being opened up to let go of our agendas and to follow Jesus into the garden. So I want you to take 20 seconds and just consider, where are you holding so tightly to your agendas and your plans that you say to God, not your will but mine be done. So Jesus is arrested, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, which is the the law court of the day, the Jewish court. These are the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite. And they can't do anything with him because they're limited in in how they're actually able to administer what they think is justice. And so they turn to the Roman government because the Roman government has the power to kill. And so they send Jesus to go and visit with Pontius Pilate, who was the governor at the time. He had just arrived. He didn't know much about Judaism. So he doesn't really understand what all of the fuss is about because too often the empire is so self-involved that it's not particularly interested in seeing the plight of those who are suffering. And so whether before the Sanhedrin or before Pontius Pilate is the representation of the Roman Empire, Jesus is put on trial before the powers and authorities, even as we want to use him as a puppet for our own purposes. The ruling authorities would have loved to have Jesus on their side. He was popular. People liked him. He performed magic tricks. And they would have loved to sign him up as a mascot. Put his picture on some t-shirts. Sell some admission. Get the hype machine going. This idea that God is on our side because look look who, who we have. Look which flag we're flying. We love the idea of Jesus as a mascot who reinforces our true allegiances, our allegiances to nation, to political party, to our families, to our organizations, even to our churches. We want to prop Jesus up and say, look, no, 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 we're on the right side of history because look who's on our side. And we conflate this idea of allegiance to Jesus with allegiance to the powers and the principalities. Because religion, politics, philosophy, all these things would love to co-op Jesus so that we don't have to give up our worldview, but we can just give it a stamp of approval from the Almighty rather than opening ourselves up to allow Him smash all of our idolatrous practices, to smash all of our allegiances, to welcome us into his kingdom. So let's take 20 seconds and consider, what have you pledged allegiance to where you want to use Jesus just to prop up this other worldview, this other team that you're on? Amen. Jesus is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, his own people. He's put on trial before Pontius Pilate, who does not understand who he is. Pilate's last question to him, qui des veritas, what is truth is the categorically wrong question to ask because it was never about ideologies, it was about a person. A person is the truth. God is the truth. And so Jesus is condemned to die. And so he is forced to take his cross, literally the worst torture of device in the Roman Empire, to die the most shameful of deaths, to carry his own weapon of destruction, out of the city gates, to say, "You are no longer a human being. You are no longer a citizen. You are on the outside. You don't deserve to be with us." He's stripped naked. He is beaten and bloodied within an inch of his life. And he's crucified to die a slow death, a torturous death where he cannot breathe. And at noon on Friday, Jesus breathes his last breath and says, Father God, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in that moment, darkness comes over the whole land and the, the veil that stands between the holy of holies and the people is ripped in two from top to bottom. You see, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is crucified for the sins of the whole world because we would rather kill God than obey him. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is crucified for the sins of the whole world because we would rather kill God than obey him. And God would rather die than give us what we deserve. God would rather die. God looks at you. And all of your most beautiful, glorious aspects of being the image of God and all of your deepest, darkest secrets, everything that you have ever done wrong. He says, I would rather die for you than I would to come in and to beat you up, or to give you what you deserve. How can the ugliest moment in human history also be the most beautiful? That it was our sins, we did it. We cast him out. We put him out of decent society. We stripped him naked. And we put him on a cross where he said, Our way is better than God's way. We want to save the world by our own measure. I was talking to somebody last week about what is God like? This core human question that we have at, the, at this, the, the, the center of our souls. What is God really like? Is he like us, just bigger? Does he have all of our same hopes and fears? Does he try to save the world that we would, but he just has, happens to have more resources? And I think about God on the cross. The God that we would rather kill than obey, the God who would rather die for us than demanding that we get in line. And I say that, if that is what God is like, if that's what he's really willing to do, then I can get behind that God. Because that's not just a neat little aside of who he is. That's just not an add-on to all these different things. That is what God is really like at the core. I don't believe in this idea when we talk about power and authority, we talk about how God is in control, as if we're all puppets, and he's the puppet master, and he's orchestrating every single thing, and he's got this tight-fisted control on time and space and history. I do not believe that God is in control. I believe that God is love, I think love is better than control. In our ancient texts, this progressive revelation of what God is like from Genesis to Revelation in the very end, one of the final things that is said about God in 1 John is God is love. God is love. We didn't always know what God was like, but then he spoke to us through his son Jesus. And so now we do. God really like if he's like Jesus on the cross I can get behind that I want to pledge allegiance to that God that new world And even though there's so much within me that fights against it, and day by day, all of the powers and the principalities, all of the things that I have believed about myself and what I've believed about power and authority and how to fix the world, all of that is constantly pushing up against the radical nature of the kingdom. I still see in Jesus and his kingdom something that is so otherworldly, that is so strange to me, that is so alien, and yet resonates with the deepest thing within me to say that could be the only thing that is really really true in this world. Can we open ourselves up to that kind of vision, that the audacity to believe something like that? And that's what brings us to the table as we celebrate Holy Communion, as we celebrate Eucharist. When we come to the table, we are recommitting our allegiance to King Jesus. Even as we have failed him, he will never fail. He always provides us a way home. He always welcomes us back. When we are unfaithful, when we have denied Him, when we have walked away, when we have beat Him up, when we have chosen our allegiances to empire over the kingdom, He still welcomes us home because it is the God who was broken open for us to welcome us in. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So, I want to invite you to stand with me as we come to the table. And as you come to the table, I'm inviting you come away from empire. Come away from the ruling authorities of this world. Come away from religion and philosophy and politics and all of the things that sound so good because they give you what you think you want. They give you the program. They give you the plan. Come away from all of those things. Empty yourself of self-help religion. Empty yourself of your own agenda. Lay it at the feet of Jesus so that you can receive this gift. And in this gift, there is forgiveness for sin. In this gift, there is a welcome home. That day by day, the more we approach his table. He washes over us and through us and he transforms us from the inside out so that our allegiance becomes more and more natural to us. It becomes more and more our true home so that we can enter into that holy place and we who with unveiled faces should be able to perceive the glory of God. So I'm going to pray. And there's three pillars throughout the room. And I want you to come. We're gonna take our time. We're gonna continue to practice social distancing and feel free that you can either participate in taking the matzah and dipping it into the juice. If you're not comfortable with that, you can take one of the little cups that has the wafer on top of it. God honors all of it. But I'm gonna pray and we're coming to the table together to see what it is he's calling us to lay down and what it is that he's calling us to take up. And so, Heavenly Father, on uh, on this Palm Sunday, 2021, we stand here like those who came before us in excitement to proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we also recognize in ourselves that we are Peter, that we are Judas. We are the buyers and the sellers in the temple. We are the soldiers. We are the Sanhedrin. We are Pontius Pilate. But even when we are not allegiant to you, you have promised us through your son Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, that we are always welcome home. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would descend upon these elements, that for us they would be the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That as we take of this cup, as we take of this bread, it would become for us new life, new covenant. Bless us, Lord, as we bless you. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at Ch. We hope you join us again soon.